The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stoneman's Book Room. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network and brought to you by Stoneman's Book Room. I'm your host, Paul J. Laverty, and it is time this week for an author retrospective. We haven't done one for a little while. And this week, I picked a bit of a hero of mine. Definitely one of the reasons I write, and even one of the reasons I have this show. Hunter S. Thompson, author of two of my favorite novels, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and The Rum Diary. Here's a little bit about him if you aren't too familiar. Hunter S. Thompson showed a knack for writing at a young age and after high school began his career in journalism while serving in the United States Air Force. Following his military service, Thompson travelled the country to cover a wide array of topics for numerous magazines and developed an immersive, highly personal style of reporting that would become known as gonzo journalism. He would employ this style in the 1972 book for which he is best known, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas which was an instant and lasting success. For the remainder of his life, Thompson's hard, driving lifestyle, which included the steady use of illicit drugs and an ongoing love affair with firearms, and his relentlessly anti-authoritarian work made him a perpetual counterculture icon. However, his fondness for substances also contributed to several bouts of poor health, and in 2005, Thompson committed suicide at the age of 67. And I've managed to dig out an interview he did as part of the Behind the Line series. And this is him being interviewed by the journalist Harrison Salisbury. Hunter, you started out, I believe, as a sports writer. And then you went to uh, Latin America and you were correspondent there for a while for the National Observer. And then you finally came to something that you call uh, gonzo journalism. Uh, and you've done that mostly for Rolling Stone, I think, is uh, sort of a national correspondent for them. Is that right? Yeah. What, what is gonzo journalism, and why do you call it that? That word has really played me, because uh, first I realized I was doing something different. It's at some point, really, for Scanlon's magazine rather than Rolling Stone, even before Rolling Stone. But it, uh, I wasn't really in this country when the new, you know, new journalism sort of began. And I wasn't sure I was doing that, but I was sure I wasn't doing, you know, uh, what we call straight journalism. Right. And after I'd uh, done a story in the Kentucky Derby for Scanlon's, a friend of mine who had covered the New York, I mean, the New Hampshire primary with me in 68, who's from Boston, and I'd recalled him, I'd recalled him using this word gonzo in a sort of uh, indefinable kind of way as kind of nice, crazy, like, you know, zing, gonzo. He wrote me a, a note saying uh, that derby piece was pure gonzo. And I thought, well, if that's what it was, uh, I thought it was a brutal failure. I'd botched my uh, assignment, you know, I had to start ripping notebooks out of, or pages out of my notebook and feeding them into the Mojo Wire and sending them to San Francisco right to the printer out of the notebook. I regard it as one of, as one of my worst failures. And I got this onslaught of mail, with, with 
Mail called saying I made a great breakthrough in journalism. I thought, well, Christ, if I made it, uh, this breakthrough, we got to call it something. I mean, why call it, you know, another word that's been used? So I just uh, liked the word gonzo, and it seemed to mean what I was doing. Kind of, there's a mixture of humor and uh, kind of a high stomping style in it. You know, it's a bit more active than your normal journalism. It's got but a great I, sound, that word gonzo. Yeah, I, I'm a word freak. I, I treat words like music. I, I like that. You know, when I read uh, Hell's Angels, which is the thing that really uh, puts your name up in lights, as it were, this really wasn't gonzo journalism, was it? As far as no. the writing is concerned, this is straight, factual, hard-hitting reporting. But there are pieces of gonzo in there that there I didn't realize until it, I went yeah, back. Right, yeah. But when you were writing this, you were writing it uh, like you would... Uh, well, not like you perhaps would have written it for the National Observer, but the style is so different from, from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, for example, which is... Well, that was pure gonzo now. Yeah. That, yeah. that was, uh, you know, I can't dance too much, but uh, you know, that's my form of dancing. That was a, just a straight act. You know, the Vegas is my favorite book because it's such a tight, hard... It's just an exercise in writing. This was more journalism. And I think... Maybe what I discovered in that it was being the first book I'd ever written. I never had that much room. Yeah. I never had that kind of the kind of space that would allow you to you know, let your mind wander and you know what if. Yeah. And that's all it makes. That's pretty grim stuff. You yeah. Know, having lived with those buggers for a year and a half, uh, you need a little little break. And if you have to create it yourself in, at five in the morning, just to, to have some fun. I hate I hate to write. Normally, I really despise the work. And all that I can really get off on is things like that. When I can let my mind run, I start to laugh. Right. I understand that Dickens used to laugh at his typewriter. Yeah. I don't laugh at my typewriter until I hit one of those, what I consider a pure gonzo breakthrough. Then I, then it's worth it, you know, all the, all the work. Sometimes I have the impression when you're, from your writing that your typewriter is, a, is an enemy and it's a struggle as to which one's going to come out on top. No, what I've finally figured out when I, I've been asked what Gonzo means for so long that I'm forced into at least a pretense of finding a serious definition. And when I went to Vegas to do, actually, when I realized I was going to do a book out of it or a long article, what I've been trying to do for a long time was to, to eliminate the, the steps or the blocks between the writer and the page. That's why I always get the fastest and newest typewriters. If they make one that costs $12 million, I'll write a bad check and get it for a while and yeah. you know I'd, it's that it's it, it's the steps between what you're thinking and what you want to put on the page isn't intense personalization a characteristic of gonzo journalism and that is not only your intense uh personal personalization of the story as you write it but your intense participation you're right in the middle of the action yourself okay. which is something which the ordinary newspaper man or journalist is not he stands aside well that's the difference that's what when I was forced to make a distinction between Gonzo and uh, what Tom Wolfe calls new journalism, that was the first and most obvious one that came to mind. That uh, people like Tom and, say, Gaitalese uh, or whoever else, I never understood what new journalism was. When Tom was writing his book, I asked him several times to send me something to tell me what it really meant. Because I'm included in, in the book, and I still, uh, I, I don't know. But it seemed like that was the most obvious difference, that they go back and recreate situations. Whereas uh, I'm either too lazy or incompetent or something, I, I can only get into a story when I'm right there, which makes uh, for problems sometimes. 
Well, I, I, I couldn't help, and I think many people probably have compared you with Tom Wolfe because you're, you're both very strong as far as style is concerned. He has an, a different style from yours. But to me, it seems that uh, Norman Mailer is closer to you because he gets involved in the story just as you do. Well, I remember in, in August of 68, uh, uh, when Mailer was writing about Chicago, I was there. Yes. And I was writing, I was researching a book that I've never done. And I was at the corner of Michigan and Balboa at uh, that famous night when uh, Reverend Abernathy let his mules off, and I, I was right smack in the middle of it. Yeah. And Mailer was uh, at a cocktail party, you know, two blocks away, which is not to take nothing away from Mailer at all, no. because I think he's broken ground for a lot of people. Mailer was really an icebreaker for me and Wolf. He deserves a tremendous amount of credit for having had the balls to go ahead and plow his own ground. And uh, if there is somebody who really, in this century anyway, say since Stephen Crane or people like that, in our time, Mailer really has, has plowed the ground that I think we're sort of trying to define now. Wolf in his way, me and mine, other people in theirs. Then we have another thing in journalism that I've noticed, and I know you have all our careers, and that is that sports reporters have a special quality that they inject into reporting style, a color, a philosophy, which the mainline reporters don't have. It goes back as far as people like Hemingway and, and Ring Lardner. I was going to say, if you give me some examples, that's pretty heavy to spring on me there. Well, you want to explore maybe a reason or two for that? Yes, I'd like to. I think two come to mind right away. One would have to do with, you, know, you have to assume you're dealing with writers rather than reporters, which yes. I make a very, you know, very strong distinction between rather than journalists and uh, novelists, say. And uh, sports reporters are used to being lied to. They're used to, especially young ones, or they see their, you know, the people older than they are and the sort of heavies in the field accepting it. And uh, it, the best of it makes angry. And that's one reason you, you come in with a, what's Hemingway's phrase, uh, the most valuable tool a writer has is a, a foolproof bullshit detector. That's not right, but it's just about, yeah, uh, just about right. And sports reporters, sports writers, uh, with the obvious exceptions, there may be one or two, no, they're being lied to. They're being, it's a whole horrible con job. And you uh, either accept it or you don't. I chose not to. So that's one reason. And so you come into any other kind of politics with a background of being conned all the time and of having gone along with it a little bit, maybe, and maybe not, or when you didn't, getting punished for it. So you come in a little angry. And the other thing is that sports writing has such a, this is where you get the distinction between writers and reporters. You get, in sports writing, the opportunity to, to use verbs and adjectives naturally that would never come up uh, in, say, in political writing or even general reporting. I remember I used to edit a, well, two papers at the same time in Florida. And I would have a hell of a time with several football games on one weekend writing the headlines. You know, where the Eagles would squash somebody and the Penguins would rip somebody and somebody else would uh, stomp somebody. And there's a, there's a great sense of kind of presence in sports writing. You know, you, you want the, the feeling of the grass. 
you know, the atmosphere, the crowd, the tension, the excitement. You get a tremendous leeway with the usage of words. It, you know, where you have to weigh your meanings and that sort of thing in political reporting. You don't have to in sports writing. Matter of fact, the wilder you get, the better That's it is. Right. That's right. That's right. Mean, well, what about what about your style? What about Gonzo journalism? When it comes to these these intensive uh, investigative stories, the sort of thing that was typical of, of Watergate, how do you cope with that kind of thing? Or can you really cope with it in Gonzo journalism? Don't you have to have somebody out there doing the digging first? Yeah, one of the great ironies of, uh, of my life is that I was in the Watergate the night that they broke in. You were? <laughs> I was in the bar with, with Tom Quinn, a sports uh, columnist for the then, or the, the now defunct uh, Washington Daily News. And we'd been swimming down the stairs. I, that, there were only two places in Washington I could stand. One was a Watergate pool, and the other was a hillbilly bar called the Shamrock, which is now closed, which gives me even more reason not to go back. But uh, I can kind of excuse myself for not, I don't, I'm not in the habit of going to every place and looking for tape on the locks and every, you know, particularly big hotels. But being a one-man staff really at the time, no, there were two, but no, at that point there were really one. Tim Cross hadn't really come in yet. And, uh, or if he, no, he had, but he'd gone off on his press yeah. book. So, uh, no, you really have to have a staff. You have to have, oh, I remember even, uh, Carl and Bob, when they were first putting it together, they had, oh, what, a veteran police reporter who had a note of some sort, who knew something. You really have to have, you can't do that kind of uh, saturation investigative reporting. No, you, you might do it once if you really yeah. stumble on, if you find a thread you can pull on. I remember that... Cy Hurst does that. Yeah, Cy does. Uh, he does it as a one-man band. I don't know how the Dickens he does it. I don't it, either, but uh, he's damn good. Somehow or other, he manages to do it. But I remember uh, you were talking with he's Tony. He's mean. Yeah, he's, that's, that's true. One of the, that's one of the main that's qualities of, yeah. of uh, I think, honest. Yeah. I consider myself honest, though I might be a little bit weird. I think meanness is a very critical quality. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM, the Community Radio Network, and brought to you by Stone Man's Book Room. And now we'll return to this month's author retrospective on the writer and journalist Hunter S. Thompson. When you were covering the McGovern campaign, did you have a premonition that something was going wrong, there was something deeply wrong with the campaign? I've seen the energy go out of it. You know, when you're driving a car very fast, you can feel it when it peaks out. You know, you, no matter how heavy your foot is, you can't make it go any faster. And then it starts to, unless it's perfectly tuned, it'll start to sputter, and that's what was happening. And I was trying yeah. to find out why, yeah. because I was very concerned about it. Yeah. I've had a, a, per, a visceral, personal hatred for Nixon for as long as I can remember it. I was losing my perspective at that point. Yeah. But, uh, you have to keep a perspective in gonzo journalism just as in any other, any other kind, don't you? Well, I don't know. I think my final refusal to write the October article, which ended up about this long, the title was For Whom the Bell Tolls. What was that? I don't, I'm not familiar with that. It was my coverage of the Nixon, it was sort of the wrap-up, the, the, the last piece before Election Day. Mm -hmm. And they had five pages open for it, and they were all waiting, you know, art ready to go. And I sent them uh, at the last second. I sent them a, a portrait by a friend of mine in town. It might even be up there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, something that I relate the president with a death said. Yes. And about 500 words, which I still consider to be the probably the most cogent 500 words ever written on the campaign. Just saying, I was so disgusted that the, you know, with the country and with the campaign that I couldn't write. I didn't feel like writing. I was going to vote for the first time in a presidential election for a major candidate since uh, 60. Or I wouldn't vote at all in 64. I voted for Dick Gregory in 68. And I wrote that uh, as an epitaph, really, for the campaign. I knew you know, it was all over. Uh, I was very depressed. And I had no idea what was coming. If I had, I probably would have spent election day out here just rolling in the yard laughing. Yeah. It didn't take them long. It was just, within six months, they were up to their neck and that's right and swell had you gotten had you you didn't have any feeling from the from the watergate stories that it appeared at that time that anything like this yeah i knew i knew that that things were that there was a story i should be on yes but this time tim cross was working on the, his press book yes and the campaign had entered its sort of terminal stages and that was the first time rolling stone had ever even attempted to cover anything except music or yeah. anything directly related yeah so we just couldn't do it yeah and uh, thank God, you know, Bradley and Carl and Bob and uh, Sussman and those people had enough sense to keep running that story. That's right. That's right. Uh, but I think probably you would agree with me that, that, that there, is, there is a small, in, or maybe a large incompatibility between gonzo journalism and this kind of factual digging, putting, you know, it's like a crossword puzzle getting it all together. I think that's where you get that disparity between the writer and the reporter. Yeah, that's you right. Know, if you can... You know, if you accept that, then there's no need to talk about new journalism or gonzo journalism. That's right. But you yeah. sort of start off where they leave off, isn't that right? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. But that's really, it occurred to me about halfway during the campaign that that people actually believed a lot of the things I was writing about, you yeah. know, muskie eating this strange uh, Brazilian drug. and I assumed everybody else was getting their coverage, just like, you know, they need their basic coverage, like I do out of the you know, papers and TV. And about halfway through the campaign, I realized that, my God. This has been one of your problems, hasn't it? That people, people, yeah. people don't understand when you're, when you're putting them on. That's been a problem a lot longer than uh, most people realize, I think. Maybe even longer than I realize. I'm not even sure myself anymore. <laughs> well, I, I, I wondered a little bit in, in, in reading back to all the things, that were not all the things, but an awful lot of the things that you've written, and then a lot of things that have been written about you whether sometimes you weren't a little bit like the, the CIA agents, that you, you lived your cover. I'll give you that one, yeah. Yeah? Not all the time. but Not all the time, but... I have to. You I get a lot to. of fun out of it, don't you? Oh, if I didn't, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> you don't go ahead and just break yourself down to jelly right. on that campaign trail. When, you know, when publishers, I think I made $10,000 off that, you know, yeah. that, that whole thing. There has to be. There's a high in, in covering politics. I think it, you know, it's a combination of power and adrenaline, which beats any drug I've found yet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When it's not fun, you stop. Right. I mean, there's not enough time. Uh, we're all getting old. Yeah. I don't. I have no intention of doing things I don't enjoy anymore. Unless, of course, I'm forced to. Will you be covering the next campaign? I'm not sure yet because I have a fear that uh, you can't do something new and right. You know, twice. Yeah. Uh, publishers, publishers always want you to go back and do sort of a repeat and different, you know, like Son of Hell's Angels, Son of Las Vegas, I guess, that sort right. of thing. That's right. And I just, I think if you've done something right once, you should move on to something else. So I'm not sure what 
what it's going to be. I have a novel I'm supposed to finish right now. You're working, you're, you're fin you finished a novel? Yeah, if I could write novels, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would. I'm kidding myself. I'm a political junkie. And nobody wants any political coverage right now. People are convinced it's going to be a Jackson Ford race, a very dull race. People are uh, sort of dulled out after Watergate and Nixon. I don't think so. I think we're going to have a, a really interesting race this time. Hunter, it seems to me that almost everything you write is permeated with a sense that time is running out, or maybe has run out already, a uh, strong sense of inner tension as far as you're concerned. Do you think it's possible for you to write without that, uh, that very strong tension? You've just hit on a very sensitive point. Because I've been told by uh, you know, at least one or two competent specialists that the kind of tension I maintain cannot be done for any, any length of time without I'll either melt or explode, one of the two. Or just wither up one day. Yeah. I never tried it, I don't know. Yeah. I think I'd probably write differently, yeah. And, or I might get on different subjects. Uh, a book like Vegas, even that, you know, which appears to be humor, is really extremely tight. Yeah. That's uh, the one book of mine that I've even read. I haven't read the other two. Because I know that's four or five rewrites, and there's not a word in there. I mean, there might be 15 or 20. But that's about all. They don't have to be there. And I'm not sure just where the tension comes from. It's whether you know, it can be drug-induced or adrenaline-induced or time-induced. That, I think, I, was because I wanted to write it just like that. Maybe yeah. I, I could. I guess I'm going to have to find out. Yeah. I don't know. But when you're writing something like that, don't you, don't you feel yourself in, in, the, in the grip of that kind of fear oh, that you're, you're, yeah. you're writing? Oh, I don't sleep. I have to get my mind right into what I'm writing about. I yeah. have to stay there. Right. That's why I have to write at night. Yeah. Because during the day, if I try, there's always something. Phone calls, the people in the driveway. I tried writing on the porch in the sun. I tried writing in here. But I have to have time to drift into that kind of mindset and be there. What about the drug culture? There's an awful lot in your books about drugs and you talk about taking them yourself all the time. Is this, a, is this essential to the, the time you're living in or is it something personal with you? I think it was for a while in San Francisco in the middle 60s. Mm -hmm. And to, under, to understand that and to be a part of it and to be accepted and to write about it, which is not to say that's why I did it. I did it because it was fun. Uh, I never really thought of myself as either a spokesman for or as a part of the drug culture, although a lot of other people do. I have to be uh, a person who does most things to excess. And so it just would you know, be normal that I'd do it with drugs. I'm pretty selective and I've learned a lot. Yeah. And uh, maybe I've burnt my mind up, maybe I've gone crazy, maybe I've destroyed myself. But uh, it doesn't worry me too much right now. Seems to me you're, you have an, a remarkable facility to, to create for the reader the feeling of, of what it's like to take a drug or to take a combination. It's usually a combination. That's what the Vegas thing was intended to do. It was originally right. written as a, I was thinking of it in terms of, uh, in visual terms, as a screen thing. Yep. After five years of living in it, I realized that nobody had conveyed that that feeling, and well, I'm not a sure that of, does. A couple of other people have tried to do it, and I'm not talking about contemporaries. I'm thinking about uh, Confessions of an opi Opium Eater. I don't know if you ever read it or not. And some of Coleridge's things, which were written either supposedly or possibly when yeah, we're just certainly he'd out. experienced uh, the use of opium and various drugs. But they, the, what, the images that come through from their writing are totally different from yours. They, the, the factor that comes in yours, to me at least, is this factor of tension. 
they often have these sort of beatific, beatific, I don't know how you pronounce it, dreams, and they go off into marvelous fantasies, but your fantasies have an element of terror in them always. Well, that's because, for one thing, I, I tend to, to favor drugs that increase uh, the intensity of the, any experience. Mm -hmm. I've never been really a fan of uh, crass or uh, any kind of downers. Mm -hmm. uh, I might have tried heroin once or twice. That interests me at all. I like anything that intensifies the experience, and sometimes you can go uh, a bit too far. Then you get real terror. Yes. And uh, but once you live through that, you go to the bottom of your mind, and there's nothing there that's gonna, you know, no horrible animal's gonna come out and you know frighten everybody around you and embarrass you tomorrow. I was told for years that I was too violent to, uh, to eat uh, LSD, mm -hmm. and I was basically a violent person and. All these people liked me and could get along with me on occasion. Uh, that under no circumstances should I ever touch that stuff. Because it really robs you of all your defenses. Whatever you're going to do, you're going to do. There's no, like uh, junkies talk about uh, smack. There's a phrase called walking with a king. You know you're on a different level. Did you ever read uh, William Thompson's Edge of Consciousness? Are you familiar with that at all? No. It's interesting, and you ought to, I think you'd like reading it, because uh, Bill Thompson has a theory that writers like yourself, and poets particularly, and, and artists, people who have intense consciousness, really are capable and do in, their, in what they see and what they feel and experience uh, something which lies ahead in the future. They really are in the future. If you want to know where the, what the future is, you go to people of this kind. That's weird. Where do you see the future of the world and the country? Is it going to be more violence? Or are we on the crest of a wave, or maybe even passed over that tremendous wave of violence that marked this country in the, in the late 60s and the early 70s? I don't, think, I don't think this country can afford that kind of violence anymore. Violence is really a luxury. Yeah. You learn that after you've been in it for a while. I used to like to get in bar fights, and you know, uh, I was sort of a, an apparently violent person. I didn't like to hurt people or... Uh, well, there's a difference, and I found out that what the difference was when I first began to go around the Hell's Angel. Yes. And I saw violence there that I had never even thought about. Really mean, ugly violence. And uh, the kind of violence I used to get into, you know, was a luxury, and I realized that. listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM and the Community Radio Network and brought to you by Stone Man's Book Room. And there we had this month's author retrospective, which was a bit of a hero of mine, Hunter S. Thompson. And he was in conversation with Harrison Salisbury back in 1976 as part of the Behind the Lines series. And that is all we have time for today, unfortunately. I've been your host, Paul J. Laverty. You can find me uh, across all the socials under that name. Until next time, keep reading.